Okay. Um, I want to start by reiterating what Ellie Weber said before. And it's very hard for me to speak to it because I'm very, very frustrated and sad. And the frustration is because none of us should be in this room right now. The Shekhanar Paskins that even though when it comes to a normal Levaya, when it's called Sarpo, which is Sheish Meos Aleph Anashim, you know, Pater from going, even though Mavatam Tarmatar Lanzasa Mace, and Mavatam Tarmatar to Gabi Malava Mace, when it comes to a person who's Masni, a person who's Totara, there's no Shia. And everyone should go. I can't imagine another person in our generation who is Masni Torah more than Rechen Kenyefsi Zechazak Levracha. So, in theory, we're all being about the Lashon right now, which is not a good thing. Now, as Ellie said before, we made a very difficult decision based on the fact that there was an Indian of not knowing how to do it in a safe fashion, a lot of uncertainty, we're responsible for your safety, not really knowing how to get there. I was at 11 o'clock last night thinking about just grabbing a sleeping bag and going to sleep in Bnei Brak or their cousins. But everyone should spend the rest of their day realizing two things. Number one, no one should be here. Unfortunately, we're here. That's the Mitzis. But if you keep halacha seriously, and of course you feel the loss of Torah that we felt today, and at some point you shouldn't go about your days if it's just a normal day, and whatever whatever you can do today to say, you know what, I shouldn't really be here, so maybe during the break I'll learn, or maybe during the break I won't watch uh, YouTube, whatever, or maybe look up YouTube videos in the Chaim Kanyevsky, just make sure it shouldn't be a regular normal day, because uh, we should be at the Levaya right now. Okay? Um, we're all here because we love Torah, and we want there to be as much Torah in this world as possible. And the presence of Torah in this world today has regressed in, in, immeasurably. There's a person who knew Torah arguably more than any person alive, certainly in this century, one of the great Torah giants. And we'll try, I'll try to talk about what his life stood for and what some of the salient features and helping you try to translate them back into your culture because you don't really live in B'nai Brak and some of the things sometimes feel a little bit odd. But one thing is the common denominator. We love Torah. We want Hashem's presence to be in this world. The more Torah that's in this world, the more Kodesh Baruch Hu's brother. What do you mean? Well, I don't really go to B'nai Brak. I don't learn from Chaim Kenyeski. But the amount of Torah in this world is not just measured by the volume of Chidushim in your notebook. We believe that Torah is a metaphysical presence. And when someone of this stature learns Torah to that degree, so now there's a gaping hole. Overnight, over the last three days, the amount of Torah present in our world has receded. I don't know about you, that makes me really, really sad. I spend my whole life trying to increase the amount of Torah in this world as best as I can, and all of a sudden, in ways that are almost impossible to quantify, we're now suffering a gaping hole. Just think about a gaping hole in Torah in this world that we're experiencing together. And before we get to any of the other discussions about what's true in that culture, what's true, that's the common denominator that unites us all. Okay? What can we learn from Rechaim Kanyevsky? Well, here was someone who was most nefesh with Talmud Torah, and something we all want to try to do. And whether it be most inefficient in Talmud Torah the way he did it, or in your way, there's something you want to learn from. Imagine you've all visited your Haredi relatives. So you've seen them living, 13 people, 14 people, in a small little apartment, four people to a bedroom, in conditions you wouldn't be prepared to sacrifice for Talmud Torah. And they are prepared for Talmud Torah. What would you say if you saw four families living together, married, and sharing one kitchen? Because all the men were learning in Kolel, and they didn't want to be bothered by earning a living. So in their minds, learning Torah and being Moshe Nefesh Torah was more important than having a kitchen for your own family. So you shared a kitchen. That's how Chaim Kanyeski lived when he was in the Kolel. He was a younger person living in the Kolel. He shared an apartment. He had his little apartment space. They had their little apartment space. And four families shared the same kitchen. 
Imagine living, and you'll see some of the pictures later if someone's successful in downloading it. If not, I'll send you the link. In a room in which the bed looks like it's literally, literally from the you know the, the Red Army or some refugee center in, in Poland, and the paint is scaling and and the food is and, you, and you're living in a small little room about the size of that maybe that corner over there, because you want to be most inefficient with Dalmatar. That's where Chaim Kamyeski was. He was most inefficient with Dalmatar. His entire life was only Dalmatar, nothing else. I, I spoke to one of my relatives last night. The word on the street in B'nai Brak was. He was a Sefer Tar. That's all you're looking at a Sefer Tar. Let me give you a few examples to help you visualize that. Um, you may have seen Mevi Erepesach, as you probably saw in the news. On Babli, Yishalmi, Rambam, Tanakh, Zohar, Tor, Yosef, Shechon every single Erepesach. Until at some point, he made a seam right in the middle. People came and told him, like, what do you mean? It's not Erepesach. It's not time for a yearly seam. He said, yeah, just... I just finished all of Torah in my dreams. So now I'm making a seum on all the Torah learned in my dreams. So you can either snicker at that or even join your dreams. But you and I both know that your dreams are what you feel deep, deep in your gut. Deep in your gut. So it's not, in, it's not impossible, it's not inconceivable that when someone could be so immersed in Torah, I can't even begin to describe it to you because I don't know what it means to die. Sometimes I dream about what I learn, but it's all gibberish, it's all confused, it's all skewed. But you can imagine someone that's dreaming Torah, because I'll say that about Yaakov of England. You can say Yaakov Mishnasa, Yaakov Mishnasa, I mean Mishnasa. And I'm making a scene for the Torah learned in my dreams. So then I asked him once, well, when did you publish your svarim if you're always making a scene? Well, this is a, a great story for this year. See, I published my svarim every time there was a Shana Mubaris. Because he had an extra month. So his cycle of finishing Kala was based on the 12-month schedule. And when he happened to have a 13th month, he didn't want to break his schedule of learning and finishing Shas. So when he happened to have a 13th month available, that's when he wrote the dozen or so Svarim that he published. I don't know that there's ever been a Sefer published on Egla Rufa before. He published a Sefer called Nachal Eisan or Egla Rufa. He once was discussing the laws, I think he published a Sefer on grasshoppers or something, and he, he, there was some question about a grasshopper's kashras, so he had to see a grasshopper to know about. And just as he was about to write the safer, a grasshopper landed on his windowsill. He was able to detect Allah. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, there's a very interesting story that highlights two points about him. The point that I'm making and then a separate unrelated point. There's once a very rich person who came and donated a lot of money for the stocker funds. He ran millions and millions of shekels of stocker. And what he said, we're clearly, clearly beneath his dignity. I'll talk about this a little bit later. And he, this Veer, this very wealthy person from Chosart, gave a lot of money. And before he left to go back to, to America, he went to come visit Rukhaim just to thank him and to say goodbye to him. So Rukhaim's people told him, I just want to let you know something. He's not going to remember who you are. He's not going to remember who I am? I was just there two days ago. I gave him millions and millions of dollars. He's not going to remember who I am? So part of it was that Rebbe didn't care. There, there was no kavod and honor and glory. But you know what Rebbe people tell this man? Imagine this. I can't imagine it, but I can imagine imagining it. He says, he tries not to remember anything so that his mind is free for Talmud Torah. He won't remember who you are because he doesn't want... Now, this is not something you should apply in your life, Chassashalmi. It would be rude if you don't remember... But it's a level of commitment. When you reach that level of commitment, could you imagine training your mind, 
training yourself not to remember anything or have any contact so that every resource available is free to know as much Torah as possible. He got lost in B'nai Brak, times of adventure. He didn't know the street signs. He, didn't, he was, wasn't able to walk two or three blocks in his own neighborhood without help, without assistance, because he didn't want to remember. So could you imagine being, and then take that and try to translate into your world. What can you empty from your mind or from your heart so you can free up more resources to know Kodesh Baruch Don't forget the street signs, and don't forget people that help you. That won't be appropriate at your level, but you have people whose massive commitment to Talmud Torah is so unconditional and so relentless. And sadly, and, and I'll get to this maybe a little bit later, he didn't realize Corona was happening for about four or five months. Into the Corona, there were millions of people dying across the world. Now, for any of us here, that would be insensitive. But he was completely immersed in Talmud Torah. He used to travel across the country to be sandaks, all across. Everyone, be a sandak here, be a sandak here. So, in essence, isn't it bitul Torah for you? He said, I don't really feel the difference. I'm in a car. I'm sitting, waiting for the sandak. I'm waiting to be the sandak, and I'm learning. I'm learning in my house. I'm learning. In the raw, in the car, morning when I'm that level of commitment to Talmud Torah, and of course that lent him incredible, incredible bakirs. It's a cute story that Rabbi Mon wrote about that at some bar mitzvah or bris, the boy's name was Moshe. Someone got up to give a share, uh, name uh, a, a speech about how many times the word Moshe appears in Tanakh. So he said the number or whatever, and Rechaim Kinyasi says, no, 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 you you, you overstretch by two. So he says, you can't be telling the truth. I checked it on the computer. There are X amount of times the word Moshe appears. And Christ says, no, it's X minus two. Why? Because there are two psukim in which the letters Mem, Shin, He appear, but they're not Moshe. One is Kol, Baal, Moshe, Yado, and one is Im, Yemat, Habayis, Mihios, Miseh. So the word Moshe and Miseh on Barilan, whatever computer program who is checking, I guess Jim didn't check the vowels, whatever computer who is checking came up as the word Moshe. So he had ex motions this person who gave the speech, was the and he said, no, I, I just, that's how much of a bucky he was. Now, let me tell you a story. Everyone was thinking the following, well, that's great, he was gifted from HaKadosh Baruch I can never be like that. There was a mechanic who once told his shir, don't worry, even if you're not that smart and you're not that gifted, you can still be something one day. And just look at Rechaim Kinyeski. And then he felt terrible. I just insulted the God of Ador. So he went to Rav Chaim Kenyeski's house and he begged him, please, please, be malchami. This is what I said about you. I said, what are you kidding? You are exactly, exactly correct. When I was young, I didn't have the brains that the other people had. And I didn't have any special gifts. And in fact, I didn't do the math on this, but he got married in that world at a relatively late age. I think 24, 26, even though he started dating at 19. And normally in that world, when you start dating, more or less three weeks later, after you find the right shidduch, it's not as long, protracted event as it is in our community. <coughs> and someone asked him, why did it take you so long to get married? It's very uncommon to spend five, six years. You're Chaim Kanyeski. He used the word, which I'm not going to use, because he can't even say the word, but he used the word about himself. He says, yeah, I was a troubled kid. When I was that age, I went, so here have the person who probably, in, in the last hundred years, only one of the top three, four people in terms of their Torah knowledge, and it was all hard work. He was all staying up. He used to stay up when he was younger, literally get up at Chatzal Salayla, learn till nights. When he was older, he got up at nights and learned throughout the day. So if you're thinking, well, it's only a question of who has the gifts, it's not. It's a question of who has the commitment. And here's the bucky of our generation. Okay. 
um, as much as he learned Torah, he loved learning Torah. There's a person, that's what I said before, you, you, and if we get this video, it doesn't seem like we're, I don't know how, how successful we'll be. His house, I shouldn't really call his house, his little square, which is probably about the size of this area, had hundreds of people on a daily basis coming to see him. Thousands of people asking questions. Thousands of people just wanting him to say the following phrase because he didn't even want to say, could you imagine not wanting to waste a half a second from Kalmatara and instead of wishing people bracha batzlacha, he just said buha, buha, which is Rashi Tebas for bracha batzlacha. Again, for you and me, that would be off. You don't want to be so curt with someone. You don't want to be, the time I save by saying buha instead of bracha batzlacha, it's not going to be cracking another tosis. I'm going to be wasting my time. But for him it was. For him, every second that he was not involved in something, and it was very, very painful for him. And I don't think he let his pain be known so much. I don't think people will realize how hard it was for him. In his moments of transparency, people around him sense what it meant to sit there answering thousands of halacha questions, requests for brachos, requests for for shalema, requests for tefillos, requests for... And that was someone who was most inept. So the next time you feel... Hopefully you should be in that state where you feel, oh, I really wish, I, I feel that sometimes. I feel like I wish I could just sit and learn. I, I don't want to be involved in this. I don't want to be involved. But when people need you, when Monami Song needs you, and I still don't need me, but I needed Chaim to be able to take your Taratan and pay for it, Taratan that you sacrifice for. You don't have the kitchen for you stay up for. You, you try to clear your mind for and to spend hours and hours every day answering people's questions and giving them brachas. Now, here's the part that I think most of you have a very hard time wrapping your heads around. That's why I want to spend a few minutes talking about. Okay? Everything I described so far could have been said in different levels and different scales about any of the Gedolim who lived over the past, whatever, not just century, but in history. I said, someone was the most ineptish for Talmud Torah, someone who answered Shilohs, someone who was a Bhakti Batara. But what a lot of people in our community have a hard time understanding is him becoming what we would call a source of supernatural information. Where instead of asking doctors, you went to ask Chaim Kanyevsky. And instead of poskening based on medical experts during Corona, you asked Chaim Kanyevsky. And during the Gulf War, instead of leaving B'nai Brak, every single person stayed in B'nai Brak because he guaranteed that there'd be no scuds, and there were no scuds in B'nai Brak. And that's not the way we function. And that's very difficult and foreign to a lot of people in this room. So let me take a few steps back, okay? We live in an era in which there's no longer supernatural information. We don't have Nevoah, we don't have Baruch HaKodesh, we don't have the Urm But we do pray for an era in which we will have supernatural information. And all of a sudden, we're going to change the way we make decisions. Now, which decisions will change, and what are the limits of those decisions, and what's the limit between supernatural instruction and Bechir HaChavshis, if after all you have a direct answer for any question you have, what decisions are available? Did Hashem give us Bechir Chavshis? I don't know, and you don't know. But I do know that when the base of Mikdash is restored, there will be a whole separate way of decision-making process available to us that we don't have access to today. Now, the second part that I think we all have to agree with, if you really believe that Torah is at the source of all creation, and not just of all creation, but all reality and experience, because when you learn Torah, Torah is an upper world, and that affects our experiences. So can you really argue the point that someone that knows Torah well enough 
is able to see things about our experiences that we can't see with our eyes and our ration and our professionalism and our judgment. That seems to me an inarguable point. Namely, there is access to supernatural information and people are able to access that even without Nevoah through Talmud. So I believe Chazal were able to see things because of their mastery over Torah in ways that were beyond rational. Now, we once asked Rabbi Lichnissin the following question. Okay, and this was a game changer for me and it took me many, many years to understand. We once asked Rabbi Lichnissin, do you believe in Das Torah? And I was shocked by what he said. He said, of course I believe in it. I just don't think there's anyone alive today who can practice it. I was blo- it was a mind-blowing moment for me. And it took me many years to get to the point that I'm at now where I said, yeah, why not? If Tara's at the heart of all reality and all experience, in theory, if you knew Tara so well and so deeply, you could see things about people and about decisions that we can't see with our science and our medicine and our ration and our empiricism. And Ravara was saying, but we're just so far from that world. Rav Chaim Kamyevsky was able through Torah to see those realities that, not just about large issues, about people, people, they bring questions to him and they say, should you go with the shidduch? Because the name of the mother was like the name of the column, we're not supposed to marry. And he would say, yes. And then tomorrow he would say no. About the exact same question. Because when you're a rational thinker, you're looking at the same set of conditions and the same set of variables, you come to the same conclusion, like in the equation. When you're looking at, well, who that person is, and is this shidduch supposed to happen in Shemayim, or is this surgery supposed to happen, and what is happening beyond, behind the curtain that we can't see, so you're not going to come to the same answer. And everyone who sat in his inner circle said he came to different conclusions. Now, I don't think anyone in this room, myself included, is going to start living their life that way right now. I'm going to still consult with doctors, and I'm going to still consult with professionals, and I'm going to still make decisions based on that. But I don't look at people who see in him that level of Torah knowledge and base their decisions upon his input. I don't see that as inferior, I don't see that as laughable, I don't see that... Now, what happened with Corona? I don't want to discuss that right now. Today's not the time to discuss that. Today we're mourning his loss and the loss of Torah. But when you see people walking in, these are serious-minded people who take themselves seriously and their decisions seriously. And that's not necessarily the way. Although, even people in our world, when they reach the end of the line, and science and medicine doesn't have any answers, some people went to Rav Chaim Pinyevsky. And I personally sent people to Mikubalim, and people in my own family, when science and medicine provided dead ends. And I wasn't able to see things that I thought the world of professional, cognitive science was able to, uh, to apply to. These are not people that are acting foolishly. These are not people that are acting irresponsibly. Again, I'm talking about specific, not, not just the large issues, but day-to-day surgeries and day-to-day. That's not the way we were taught, not the way we were trained, continuing our masara. But this is a person who tirelessly, tirelessly, I think we're finished, right? Okay, sorry. Thank you for your help. Well, I'll, I'll send you the clip. And you can hear about people who just came into his house at 2 in the morning and 3 in the morning because the child was sick, because their baby was sick, because their wife was sick. So... Hopefully we'll watch Leviathan now, but I, I want you to sense the loss of Torah in our world. I want you to sense what we can learn from him, and in particular that role that he played, which isn't our, isn't in our wheelhouse. It's not the way we conduct ourselves, but it doesn't make it 
um, absurd. It's just a different way of going about it. And one day, we're going to reach some new balance between the two. Right now, we're in a world without nevuah and without ruach hakodesh, and therefore we make our decisions based on the fear of and what science has to provide. That's not the perfect world.